This is an Irish independent podcast. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Proud sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry. Hello and welcome to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. Folks, how much does food impact on our mental health? Is it something you've ever considered? Well, my guest this week is kickstarting conversation about how what we eat is creating what she says is a mental health apocalypse. Charter psychologist Kimberly Wilson's new book, Unprocessed, how the food we eat is fueling our mental health crisis, looks at the role food plays in brain development and even how nutrient deficiencies can change our personality. I'm looking forward to this one. Kimberly, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you very much for having me back. How are you? I'm, I, I'm excited. How nutrient deficiencies can change our personality. You've just perked up the ears of all our listeners. They're all intrigued about this, to say the least. Uh, it's great to have you back on the show. Um, let's chat about the impacts of social media and what they're having uh, in terms of, from a mental health perspective, but also obviously the, how food impacts on our mental health as well, because it does, doesn't it? It makes a huge difference to our mental health. Absolutely. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, if we're thinking about social media, I think there's a real mixed bag about the influence of social media on our mental health. So on one hand, one of the things that people find really, really helpful is that they are able to find a community and they're able to find resources to either help point them in the right direction for treatment or useful self-care, um, or just people who have a similar experience to them. And when you have a mental health condition, it can be really tough and it can be very isolating. It can feel very lonely. The other, on the flip side of that, the growing concern is that for some people, because of really the way the algorithm works, there can be a way in which sharing your mental health crisis is incentivized. You get more likes, you get more clicks, you get more interaction, you get more engagement. And some people are starting to build communities around their illness itself. So not just around their experience and their kind of working the way through it, but around their symptoms and around their illness. And there's a concern that for some people, that kind of combination of social media algorithm and the the validation that comes from that might be driving a kind of um, a reinforcement of their illness. So it's a real mixed bag um, in terms of the effect of social media on, on mental health. And what made you look at food then? So food and how it's linked to mental health. What makes you what makes what made you look at that? Um, that really came out of, in, in terms of a clinical sense, it really came out of the time when I was working in prison. So I used to run, um, maybe I mentioned this when I was on the show before, um, I used to run a therapy service um, for the NHS in what was at the time Europe's largest women's prison. And uh, around that time, so you know, when we're thinking about working with prisoners, you also have to think about security. So not just escapes <laughs> and attempted escapes, but also people becoming very anxious when their court date is coming up or when they're getting a visit or um, things like Christmas and Mother's Day would be very anxious times and people could end up either having a downturn in their mental health or becoming agitated and angry and anxious and stressed and start fights, be more likely to kick off um, if they were in that kind of state. So I was always having to think about security and safety and managing anger and aggression and thinking about who was the most high risk person and getting them extra support. Um, and this uh, it was a replication of a study came out 
in the Netherlands. And they found that in a group of 221 men, it was, that giving them nutritional supplements, vitamins and minerals, reduced objective incidents of violence by about 30%. And that is really striking, A, because we don't tend to think about violence as being something that is linked to um, nutrition at all. We think of it as a kind of personality or a mood state, nothing to do with your nutrition. Um, It was really striking because a study that had been done in 2002, so about 10 years before then, showed the same thing. A UK study found exactly the same thing. And so I'm like, okay, this is really interesting. This is a cheap intervention. You know, vitamins don't cost much. They're cheaper than most other medications that you can be putting people on. They're low risk. You know, we're not talking about terrible side effects like nausea or vomiting or sleepiness. The side effect is you have better nutrition. Um, And it has this really profound effect. So that was really the time when I thought really kind of seriously about, okay, well, if this is what it's having, the effect it's having on, on mood and something like violence, what effect might it be having on just how I'm feeling day to day and my energy levels or my optimism. So yeah, that was when I first got into it. Fascinating. And we know what particular vitamins or what particular foods may trigger mental health issues or trigger, I suppose in that case, violence. Hmm. Not not really. And, and I think that's the point is that your brain, because it has such a high energy demand, so your brain is the hungriest organ in your body, it's churning through so much energy all the time, it also has a massive nutrient demand. And not just one nutrient, but the whole spectrum of nutrients. You need to make things like serotonin and dopamine, you need iron, you need B vitamins, you need vitamin C, you need magnesium, you need zinc. So you need a full range of all of the nutrients in sufficient amounts to ensure that your brain has the building blocks for what it needs to help you feel well and just to help you function well. And is there any link between, I suppose, you you would read about it in terms of mood, those kind of highly processed, high sugar diets in terms of, you know, peaking the blood sugars and dropping the blood sugars and about the mood, the mood patterns associated with that? Yeah, there is actually. So um, at the, it's still kind of quite early days for the ultra processed foods, mental health research. And part of that is that we've only kind of just settled on the proper definition for what an ultra processed food is. And it's still controversial and people still argue about it because food is increasingly complex and we're putting different things in and taking other things out. Um, But broadly, when we're thinking about ultra processed foods, we're thinking about foods that are made to be ready to eat or ready to heat. Um, So, you know, your convenience foods, your ready-made sweets, biscuits, um, anything that you can just quickly put in an oven and not do very much else to. when you're looking at big populations, populations, populations over time, um, you find that the people who have a higher proportion of ultra processed foods in their diets tend to have a greater risk of later developing depression. So there seems to be this relationship between ultra processed foods and depression, and similarly between a higher intake of ultra processed foods and risk of dementia. Um, and that could be for a range of reasons. It could be because, and, and in the UK, um, at least 55% of the average adult's diet is ultra processed food, comes from ultra processed foods. And the thing about ultra processed foods is that almost by definition, they've had some of their vitamins removed in the, in the act of processing, you lose some of the vitamins. So, um, it could be that if you're a big proportion of your diet is ultra processed, then 
actually you're just low on vitamins a lot of the time. But also there was a study that took 110 healthy people who tend to have a, a generally nutritious diet. So people just, you know, we eat pretty well, that's fine. And just for one week, the research team said, what we want you to do is to have these delicious Belgian waffles for breakfast, four time, you know, on four days. So two waffles on four of the days and have a couple of takeaways this week. And what they found in just seven days was a, a deterioration in what's called hippocampal dependent learning and memory. So your hippocampus is the part of the brain that is the seat of memory. It's where all of that short-term stuff becomes long-term stuff. It's, it's the area of the brain that gets most and kind of quite severely damaged in Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so within a week, there was damage to the hippocampus, impairments in, in the hippocampus, which affected learning, memory, and appetite control. So people had poorer control of their appetites. And this could create a vicious cycle, right? Where if you're eating a lot of these foods, it then leads to changes in the brain that make it more difficult for you to manage your appetite, which makes it more likely to eat more of these foods and around and around you go. So the, like I said, there's there's more to learn, but the, the observational data and the early clinical data is starting to come together to say, having a lot of these foods in our diet is probably not a good thing for our brains. Okay, so as ever, it comes back to that moderation of eating as many you know, kind of natural-based foods or in, the, in their, their least processed form, and then the odd treat or the odd takeaway, but not, you know, four over seven days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it really is, you know, about moderation and, and balance, but also as a foundation, starting from the point where, okay, does my brain have enough? Let me just focus on making sure my brain has enough, then I can have you know, additional things. I can have a bit of a treat, maybe I'll have a glass of wine because that's not going to take away from what my brain needs. But if I don't have that kind of baseline covered, then my brain is going to be struggling. Chatting about IQ levels then, and the fact that IQ levels have decreased over the course of the last X amount of years. Fascinating. Fascinating and terrifying, I think. <laughs> <laughs> because... It's called the Flynn effect, and Flynn was an IQ researcher. And there are, you know, there are some contro controversies around what we mean when we say IQ. And certainly, when IQ studies were initiated, like back in the forties, fifties, sixties, they were quite racist and misogynistic and not culturally relevant. And they were used to kind of justify um, prejudice and sometimes eugenics. So it has a potted history. Things have changed now. We've come a long way um, with IQ research and a lot of the tests are standardized. But essentially with IQ, ever since we started testing IQ, it's been going up. Global IQs have been going up. People have been getting, you know, some people would say getting better at doing these tests. Others would be saying getting smarter, but your IQ has been going up. And that's been linked to things like better healthcare, um, better nutrition, less pollution, better education, all of those things. But since the 90s, global IQs have been in decline in Western countries in particular. So Norway, Australia, Germany, and the UK. And in fact, in the UK, one researcher says that high IQ levels have been decimated. <laughs> You're no scaring everybody. You do know that. Yeah. Decimated is a scary word. It is. Um, and, and we have to start thinking about why that is. Why we've had, you know, because it, we, we, it doesn't sound like education is getting worse. Um, 
pollution argue is getting better. We have more standards for pollution. Less people are living in, in polluted countries, certainly in Western um, countries. And so one of the big uh, kind of red flags is, well, is it something to do with our diets then? Because that's the thing that had been getting better and we've, we've been having better nutrition. And then suddenly from the 90s, it's been getting worse. And certain things like in the UK, we have widespread insufficiency of iodine um, and, and particularly in pregnant women. And the importance of that is that iodine makes thyroid hormone. Thyroid hormone controls your metabolism. So, you know, people complain about having high or low thyroid function. Um, But it also essentially is needed to kickstart the development of your organs during, of the baby's organs during pregnancy, and in particular, the brain. So we have, and we know that in iron deficient areas of the world, IQ is suppressed in that population. So this is very clear. It's very well evidenced. And in the UK, where we don't have salt iodization, we don't have fortification of food with iodine, we have wide scale deficiency during pregnancy is one thing. It's the same thing with omega-3 fatty acids. Back in 1994, the recommendation was that we needed to have two portions of oily fish per week. And that what that would do the scientific advisory um, council said was that would help to reduce heart attacks and also it would improve fetal outcomes. And since then, really, our fish intake has gotten worse. So that's not great. Um, And again, omega-3 fatty acids form the outer membrane of your brain cells and it's required for your brain cells to be able to send signals to one another. And we know certainly from animal studies when there is insufficient omega-3 the brains are less well connected and the hippocampus is smaller. So this area of the brain, again, that's linked to learning and memory. And so, again, there are these nutrients that are essential for brain development, essential for healthy brain function, and therefore things like IQ and concentration that we are just not getting enough of. And again, that's that's quite concerning. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Folks, you're listening to Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. We're chatting all things food and mental health links. So for people who want to be happier, what should they be eating more of? We kind of looked at one or two of them, kind of unprocessed foods, but you're saying there, if they don't eat the oily fish, should it be getting a supplement in of your omega-3s as well? Presumably supplementation is important if you're not eating the right things. Um, It can help to fill the gap. So ideally people are getting things from whole foods because there are a whole bunch of nutrients in whole foods that scientists haven't isolated and therefore haven't been able to put into a pill. Um, So you might be able to take all the kind of vitamin teas and vitamin waters you like, but you might not be getting all of the broad spectrum of nutrients that you'll get in an apple or a carrot or whatever. Um, So for things like omega-3s, yes, um, ideally you're getting it from oily fish. um, So one or two portions a week. And again, you get your iodine from seafood as well. Um, And if you're not, then you might want to consider an omega-3 supplement that has, and if you look at the back of the packet, EPA and DHA. We're not really interested in ALA. Um, It is an omega-3. It is helpful, um, but we tend to have enough of it in our diets, really. Um, And it's really the EPA and DHA that the brain needs that we tend to not be getting quite as much of as we would like. Um, And then generally, in in terms of the evidence on mood, it's really just a 
a healthy diet. And I, I wish I could say something a bit more like the, mag- the, mag- the magic, the magic food group or whatever. Oh, I know. That, that's what everybody always wants, isn't it? <laughs> Just go out and eat this one thing. But really, what you want to be thinking is my brain is really hungry and it's really hungry for all the nutrients. And so what I need to be doing is eating a broad, healthy diet. It's not going to be one nutrient that does it all. Nutrients don't work on their own. They're not like solo entrepreneurs. They are team workers. They work together. It's a coalition. It's a cooperative. They help each other. So you need to be getting this broad spectrum of nutrients in um, to really make sure that your your brain is is getting what it needs. And of course, for parents listening in, it's a really important kind of conversation to be having at home to ensure that your children are getting the oily fish, you know, the iodine, all of that, because chances are mm-hmm. a lot of households and a lot of children aren't getting them. Yeah, I think, and it's not just, I mean, not even just the conversations. I mean, the the biggest influence on what your child chooses to eat is what they see you eating. So the kind of do as I say, not as I do thing doesn't work for food choices. If you want to encourage your children to eat vegetables, they have to see you eating vegetables. It's really, you know, it's got to be a kind of holistic um, shift or intervention for the whole family. But kind of on that, you know, we know we're in the middle of this kind of poverty crisis. We know people are really struggling. And we know that one of the first casualties when people are having to cut back financially isn't isn't just food. Food is the thing that people cut back on and they they... People are, the studies are already showing that people are choosing lower quality foods now in order to make money stretch further. But the very first casualties are fruit and vegetables. And we're already seeing people putting back fruit and vegetables from their supermarket trolleys because they don't last as long, because they're more expensive per gram and per calorie. And so really what we want to be saying and, and doing and, and putting pressure on is, you know, speaking to your MPs and your representatives to say, how can we ensure that when the whole nation is in this financial crisis, that the poorest in society aren't going to be suffering unduly because of these inequities in in the pricing of food? And one of the big things that you're uh, scared of is the word that you use is dementia. And when it comes to mental health and mind health, one of the long term issues that we're facing on a, on a societal level is, you know, an increase in the levels of dementia in society. And it's something that you're very you know, aware and terrified of. Yeah, no, it's it's kind of the only thing that really scares me about, about my future, right? about my future health. Things like um, flexibility. I can work on, you know, I can try and do my thing to stay well. And but the. And maybe it's because, well, I think it's the illness that most adults are frightened of, but also because, you know, brains are my work, brains are my job. And uh, and so it feels really kind of prescient and front of mind for me. One of the biggest risks at the moment for our future brain health is our increasing rates of diabetes. Um And we know that type two diabetes increases your risk of dementia to at least two or threefold. Um, And the longer you have the condition, the greater the risk. And that's what makes the increasing rates of um, diabetes diagnosis in children really, really frightening. Because it used to be perhaps if you got it, you got it in adulthood and you could manage it. And, you know, maybe you'd get it in your 50s and, and not, you know, not great, but not as not yeah, terrible. Yeah. But if you're getting it at 9, 10, 11, then essentially that's decades worth of, 
of neurological damage. And that is what's going to really, I think, create a tsunami almost of, of dementia risk and poor cognition and cognitive impairment in the next 30, 40 years. And chat to me around anxiety and depression. Again, two things that are absolutely on the rise in terms of food links, you know, that go hand in hand with them. Again, is it that high sugar, ultra processed diets or do we have any research on that? So in terms of anxiety and depression, it's a bit of a mixed bag. So the depression data, again, tends to be whole diet. So better quality. People who have a very ultra processed or very high sugar fat diet tend to have poorer health outcomes. And it seems to be bi-directional. So both that poor diet can increase your risk independently of, of depression, but also that when you're depressed, you're more likely to eat these and crave these kinds of foods. So it can create, again, this vicious cycle. With anxiety, it's a, a slightly different story. So the thing that comes up consistently or, or more consistently for things like stress and anxiety are B vitamins. Um, so you might have seen um, headlines a little while ago that said that Marmite can help with anxiety. <laughs> and and really, you know, it's not, there's nothing special about Marmite except that it's a good source of B vitamins. Um, and biotin, which is a B vitamin uh, in particular, seems to be really helpful. Um, making sure you've got enough is, and, and sometimes folate as well, which again is a B vitamin, um, particularly good for anxiety. But again, when we're thinking about whole diet, we're talking then about whole grains. You get your B vitamins from your whole grains. You get them from kind of um, leafy green vegetables and dairy and fish. So again, nothing, no specific superfoods. Again, thinking about that wholesome, minimally processed, nutrient-dense diet. You, you very much nailed it in the title of the book, haven't you? Unprocessed in big block capital letters. Yeah, you know, if you want to give people the hint in terms of how to be healthier... <laughs> That's what you need to eat. Uh, and of course, the name of the book is Unprocessed, How the Food We Eat is Fueling Our Mental Health Crisis. It's available now. And if people want to find you online, presumably Instagram is a place to go. Instagram is where I hang out the most. Um, and I am at food and psych. Amazing. Kimberly Wilson, thank you so much for joining us today. The very best of luck with the new book. And it's great to have you back on the show. Folks, really hope you enjoyed today's episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, in association with Leia Healthcare. Fascinating insight into food and mood. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to rate and review. And you can get in touch at Carl Henry PT on Instagram and realhealth.independent.ie. We'll see you next week for more Real Health. Slong so full. Leia Healthcare, looking after you always. Pride sponsors of Real Health with Carl Henry.